Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Strangers in Jerusalem podcast. Today, I've got an interview that I'm going to play uh, for this episode. This happened a few days ago. I was interviewed by my good friend David. Uh, he's a Jewish chaplain. I met him in grad school, and he is the host of the Mystic and Skeptic podcast. And the audio for that podcast is then played on Radio Free Nashville uh, every week. And this this particular interview aired on May, May 18th, 2022, so just a few days ago. So I'm just going to play that here on this podcast. This uh, For an hour, uh, solid hour, we talked about the Pharisees, the Jesus movement, and some of the related issues. I don't have, I didn't have enough time to cover everything, obviously, and then there were some parts even in there, in the interview, where I didn't articulate things very well. I didn't know what questions he was going to ask, and so I was sort of thinking off the top of my head. But because there's so much material on this topic, and I think it's very important, a very important topic to understand the early early Judaism and the Jesus movement, and therefore I'll probably spend... Um, a future episode, maybe th- maybe a three-part series on the Pharisees where I go much deeper. But this gives you um, the introductory material and my, my overarching argument. So I'll play that interview right now. In this week's show, we have uh, Trevin Hatch. He is a um, graduate from Spurtis Institute of Learning. Um, there we met and we would discuss um, early Christianity and uh, Judaism. Uh, in a class we took together, and he wrote a fascinating uh, chapter in a book, which is also a paper called um, The Relationship Between the Pharisees and Jesus. We've done a series on Paul and one on the Jesus the Israelite, so we want to talk about his research on the movement that was around the time of Jesus of the Pharisees, which is often maligned in certain circles, and even in the Talmud, it, it gives you some references to them, and as well as in Josephus. We want to know specifically, were they like a political party? Were they uh, the, the most devout Jews of that time? And what was the main issue that uh, these debates would happen between Jesus and them? And a lot of the debates were um, rabbinic debates in the sense of uh, interpretation and how to apply the Torah. So it's interesting to see uh, historically how that uh, took place versus just assuming that they were the bad guys. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about your research and what made you be interested in the, the Jewish group of the Pharisees as, uh, as a group that, that hasn't been fully explored and that people make assumptions about? Yeah, thanks. Uh, my, my fascination with Pharisees started when I left my undergraduate degree, and I wanted to go be a biblical scholar, but it, throughout my graduate degree, or my, sorry, my, throughout my undergraduate degree, I got kind of spooked of the field of biblical studies. So I thought maybe I'll do something more practical, like Jewish studies. Uh, it's not, it's actually not that much more practical, but I thought it was. And so I found myself in a master's degree in Jewish studies at Baltimore Hebrew. And so now I'm not Jewish. And so I'm stepping into the Jewish Studies Academy, and I'm being taught how to read ancient texts by Jews, okay? And so I'm, I'm reading through this, I'm taking courses in rabbinic literature, and I'm noticing kind of a, a difference in the traditional Christian view of Jesus's relationship with his peers, and then what I'm getting in Josephus and a little bit in rabbinic literature. And so I start to notice these differences, and so I decided to write my master's thesis on the Pharisees, and then when I got to my doctoral program uh, at Spurtis, I continued that, and then I, that's where I published my book, and I dealt with, I've got the chapter you mentioned on the Pharisees, but, and we, we'll talk about this in a minute, but basically I lay out my argument that the Pharisees and Jesus were friendly, they were cordial, but there's subsequent chapters, probably I dealt with probably maybe three chapters in that book on Pharisees, because uh, the subsequent chapters deal with, okay, let's say, Trevin, you're right, and the Pharisees and Jesus are cordial. What do we do about these passages where Jesus is calling them hypocrites? And so then I deal with those in subsequent chapters. So really, the second half of my book deals with Pharisees. So that's kind of the background of how we got into it and, and why I'm interested in it. Well, so the title of your book and 
Is it written for a Christian audience or for laymen or for the academic circles? Because a lot of books are very thick and they're kind of hard to follow if they're totally academic. So um, tell us also about your background and your involvement with uh, Burning Young uh, University. Um, yeah, so at Brigham Young University, it's a, it's a Christian Latter-day Saint University. And most of scholars, most of the scholars, when they go out and get training in biblical studies and then come back to, to BYU in the Intermountain West, most of them naval gaze. They all, they kind of, they talk about Latter-day Saints, for Latter-day Saints. Most of their books are by Latter-day Saint presses. This is historically over the last maybe 30, 40 years. But what I wanted to do is take all my training in Jewish studies and write a book for a larger Jewish and Christian audience. And really the way I pitched this to the publisher was that we have all kinds of scholars dealing with the Jesus traditions and the historical Jesus. We have Catholic, we have Jewish, we have secular, we even have Muslim scholars like Reza Aslan, but we had no Latter-day Saint scholars who have put their work out there for others to see how we are dealing, we as Latter-day Saints, how we deal with the Jesus traditions, at least not me. So I wrote this volume for lay, a lay audience. So it's an academic book, but I wrote it so that high interest, but non-specialists is what I call high interest, but non-specialists will be able to see the scholarship, see what we do in the academy, but they can understand it. It's not so tedious in terms of how I wrote it. And the title of the book? Oh, the book is called A Stranger in Jerusalem, Seeing Jesus as a Jew. And it's on Audible. I read it and it's put it up on Audible so people can listen to it if they're not into reading books. Wonderful. Um, so that is it's a similar approach to what I'm trying to figure out with Jesus because, um, you know, a question that comes up, especially during Fashion Week is, was Jesus uh, in conflict with the people in Jerusalem, with the Judeans, uh, being someone that grew up in Galilee? Did he have a different calendar? And that's why he celebrated the Passover either early or late based on whatever gospel. And was the issue related to authority versus uh, a political movement or a certain interpretation based on the scribes and, and the teachers of the law of that time? From your studies, what do you see to be the contradistinction between him and the Pharisees? And if it's true that he was a Pharisee in the broader sense, what was distinct and in, in, uh, noble or, or um, new that he was bringing into the table that was causing so much uh, conflict? Okay, yeah, that's a, a big question. So I'll just kind of launch in and then you can kind of steer me and guide me. But uh, how I would start it. So what I do with my students and then anybody else who kind of corners me and says, okay, tell me about the Pharisees. There's a, in fact, I have my notes up here because there's just so many data points um, about the Pharisees and Jesus, and, and we're going between the Gospels and Josephus. So in a nutshell, um, and then after the nutshell, we can go down the rabbit trails, but in a nutshell, I have the Pharisees as a popular group, popular with the masses. So what I started to do is I went through Josephus, and I took some of the scholars who deal with Pharisees in, in Josephus, like Steve Mason. And then I com combined it with the Gospels, and it seems to me that the Pharisees, and this is the case from a few, some several generations before Jesus, all the way through this first century, in the different sources, that they seem to be popular with the masses. And we have instances in Josephus where he says that the Hasmonean kings were some of them who sided with Pharisees and brought them into their circle, were favored by the by the populace, and then others who rejected Pharisees were not favored by the populace. And Josephus says in several different places that whatever the Pharisees say against the high priest or against the king, the populace believe them and the populace side with Pharisees. So I start there and then I show places where Josephus himself says that he followed the rulings of the Pharisees and that the Sadducees followed the rulings of the Pharisees because the, the populace, you know, they were Pharisaic Jews, they followed the Pharisees. And then what I do is I take that and I combine it with the Gospels and I show in the numerous places where you have, like, for example, in Luke, and there's one occasion where Jesus is speaking to a large crowd. And then it says a Pharisee approaches him, like interrupts his sermon, approaches him, asks, asks him to be a guest, an honored guest 
at his home for the banquet, for a mealtime symposia, like a Greco-Roman style banquet. And I take that along with many others and say, you know, this is interesting because there's no evidence of hostility. The crowds are never upset at the Pharisees. We have numerous occasions in Acts and in Gospels and in Josephus where the populace revolt against the chief priests or Pilate um, or the high priest, you know, whoever, but never the Pharisees. So that's kind of how I lay out that in the, for the first, like the foundation of my chapter and my argument is that the Pharisees are popular with the masses. What this means is that if the Pharisees were following popular teachers around Galilee like Jesus and constantly trying to get them arrested, trying to kill them, then um, they wouldn't be, you know, try, and trying to stone women, uh, they wouldn't be very popular. And I deal with all of those episodes, break them all down and, and discuss them. So I can pause there if you want, but that's the foundation what I, where I start by. And then I've got other categories that I kind of analyze. So um, if, if they were the popular movement and then you have this figure of a Messiah coming in and having a prophetic role, would, because some of the anti-missionaries, they would say, well, we know that Jesus is not the Messiah because he didn't do well with the, with the leaders of that time. If he would have walked in and shook hands with the, the Sanhedrin and the popular movement of the synagogues around Jerusalem, they also had a good relationship with him. Then we would have more evidence that he was a triumphant king. But instead, the way that is depicted, especially in like the Gospel of John, is just ongoing conflict. And I have a Catholic friend that wrote a paper where it's almost like the murder of Jesus. And it's worse than um, that one popular Fox News guy where it's like, who killed Jesus? Like the Pharisees or the, the Jewish leaders had it against him and they were all trying to murder him one way or another. Right. Um, how do you um, work around that? Like it was it specific people within the Pharisees. Wasn't uh, Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea uh, a Pharisee and, um, and Nicodemus um, a Pharisee as well? Yeah. So Joseph of Arimathea, we don't know. Nic Nicodemus was. So the way I set it up, uh, so I have different, like in the chapter when I, I established okay, here's the Pharisees, here's the data that shows they were popular. Then I talk about the characteristics of the Pharisees. Here's their religious devotion. Here's what Josephus says about them. Um, they were known to, to practice what they preached. They were known to be guardians of the law. You know, people trusted them and they would go to them. And then later on in the paper, I have a category on the relationship between Jesus and the Pharisees. And that's where I, I pull in a lot of data to try to show how Jesus is inter interacting. And we have, and I just, let, I'll just pull it up here so I can just rifle through these. We have, for example, you mentioned Nicodemus. Here's a Pharisee who comes to Jesus. And some people might say, yeah, but that's just one person. And he came in the night. So therefore, you know, it might just be that the, the Pharisees and Jesus and the Jesus movement aren't really friendly. But we also have in Luke 17, we have in verse 21, where Jesus tells a group of Pharisees, that the kingdom of God is within them. Each individual data point has been challenged by Christian scholars, but when I'm taking all of them, um, it's fairly compelling. So in another case, when they're entering Jerusalem, when Jesus is entering Jerusalem in his last week, it says that when his disciples, when his followers were yelling out, oh, here's, here's the Messiah, hail Jesus, you know, here's the Messiah. Who was it that told everybody to be quiet? It was the Pharisees. Christians will say, yeah, see, they're the Pharisees. They, there they go again. They're constantly following Jesus all the way around, all of his ministry, like nipping at his heels almost, be yapping like dogs. And, and I, I just don't think that's a very accurate portrayal. The reason why they're always with him, inviting him to dinner, and it says in the, in the Galilee, it says they're the ones that came to Jesus to warn him of Herod Antipas. In Luke, it says this. This is the very reason why Jesus left to Jerusalem in the first place. So as he's going to Jerusalem in Luke, there's the Pharisees are with him and he's constantly having these discussions with him on the way to Jerusalem. And this is where we get the prodigal son and the lost coin. Um, and then when they finally get to Jerusalem, he comes down the Mount of Olives. His disciples start yelling and screaming. And it's the Pharisees who tell them to be quiet. 
Well, why, is, why are they telling him to be quiet? It's the same reason why they warned him of Herod Antipas. It's because when during Passover season, you're entering Jerusalem and you have your entourage, so to speak, yelling about you being the Messiah, that puts, like, that's pretty much puts you on a collision course with the chief priest. You're not going to last one day if you start doing that. And Pharisees are saying, you need to keep it down. Um, other examples. So you have, oh, okay, 20 years after Jesus' death in Acts 15, you have a, a Jerusalem council where the followers of Jesus, the leadership, come together and they start debating on how they should accept Gentiles. Should Gentiles come in and become Jews? Or do Gentiles have to be, when they come into the Jesus movement, do they not need to become Jews? And if you notice who the voices are at that council, you have Paul standing up, giving his argument. You have James. You also have in, in Acts 15.5, you have the Pharisees. You have, it says Pharisees, followers of Jesus, stand up and give their argument. I don't think if there were three Pharisees who followed Jesus, they would have a seat at that table, so to speak. I think it's a sizable portion. I think, I think that faction represents like the Pharisaic Jews who follow Jesus. Um, other examples, you have Paul. You have Paul going around the Roman Empire and, when, and, and speaking to different groups, but whenever he's in front of a Jewish audience, he starts out with his pedigree. I was trained by Gamaliel. I'm a Pharisee. He, he says proudly that he's a Pharisee. If the Pharisees were so bad and so evil and trying to stone women and get, get you know, popular teachers you know, thrown in prison, um, they, Paul would not be using that as something to be proud of. And then we, you know, there's, there's many other instances um, that we can point to. But that's kind of how I break that down and show Jesus is friendly with them. I think Jesus is Pharisaic, even if he wasn't part of some kind of membership, like a Pharisee proper. Um, he's always with them. He's, he's going to their meals. He's discussing with them. Um, when, the, when he's arrested and on his trial, three of the Gospels, Pharisees disappear from the scene. So, uh, yeah, there's, there's a lot there, but I think Jesus is Pharisaic. I think he falls within the uh, Pharisaic umbrella in terms of his halakhic rulings, in terms of his approach. And I think most of, the, most of the passages that say, like, for example, when he heals someone's arm and the Pharisees go out of the synagogue and attempt to destroy him or kill him, I deal with those and I've got explanations for those. And uh, I just don't think it fits a first century, early first century setting. I think it fits a post, like a late first century post temple destruction setting. And there's all you know, there's ways that I deal with that. So the woes where Jesus says, woe to you Pharisees, teachers of the law, um, are those uh, projections from the, the Jewish Christian movement after they broke off from the greater Jewish community? and trying to say that they missed the mark and they're, they're going a different path, or those could be historical. Um, because this is the one thing that people forget is that when a prophet would enter a town, the reason that a prophet had authority and people listened to them is because he had a relationship with people. If you're just a random guy that walks into a city uh, like Job, uh, was it Job? No, uh, Jonah. Uh, either you have God to back you up, which is going to convict the hearts of the people, or you have a relationship where people know you and respect you. And even if you tell them to their face that they're doing wrong and that they're uh, not following God faithfully, that that's what's going to stir their hearts to repentance. So for Jesus to be that critical of the Pharisees, is it like in other passages in the Bible where it's, you know, God chastises his children first, and then he comes after the strangers. Is it a familiarity that gives him the right to accuse them and, and attack them in that way? Or is it uh, trying to differentiate himself from those Pharisees, which are um, making a mockery of the name of God and not following him faithfully? Yeah, so it's, it's a really good question, and it gets kind of complicated, but the, basically what I try to argue and, and I broke this down, I, and I, in the book I say, okay, there's like 39 or so episodes that deal with Pharisees. How many of these are characteristic, like how many of these are hostile? How many of these are neutral, like appear to be? And how many of you are, are favorable? So I break them all down, I deal with them all individually. And it's the pattern that I, I saw is that 
where you have Matthew or John, for example, saying, you know, where, like in Matthew, you have Jesus saying you are, you know, you're hypocrites, vipers, this kind of language. And in John, he says they are sons of the devil. A lot, all of that, I think, is a post, I don't think that's in Jesus's mouth. I think that's a late first century setting. What I think happened, I explained this, and it takes, takes an entire chapter to, to lay this out, but what, when they decided, when the, the Jesus followers decided that Gentiles don't have to, to become Jews, like when, when they all kind of sided with a, a pro-Gentile, uh, Gentile-inclusive, um, what do you call it? Like, a, this, is, this is going to be our platform. We're, we're going we're gonna to be outward. We're going to pull Gentiles in. They don't have to become Jews. When that happened, I think the Pharisees uh, revolted. I think they just, they, and even the word in there in Acts where it says that they, they made this decision, there was a, a hostile, or the, the Greek word is a revolt at the Jerusalem Council. Uh, that's where I think the rift happened, and that's where I think Paul and Peter were not, uh, they didn't see eye to eye. We see this in Galatians. We see this in other, uh, other of Paul's letters where he's going around, and he's saying there's people in Jerusalem who are followers of Jesus, and they are promoting or saying that we should perpetuate circumcision. They're saying that he calls them dogs. He says if they, if they want to um, preach that Gentiles need to come in and be circumcised, then I hope, it, I hope they slip at the knife and accidentally castrate themselves. He says this very explicitly. So he's upset that there are, and I'm saying these are Pharisees, based on Acts 15.5 and some other places where um, they go up into Antioch, where there's a, a meal time, and there's Paul there, and there's Peter there, and Jews and Gentiles are there, and it says that they broke into different groups, and Paul was upset because Peter and Barnabas decided not to eat with Gentiles, and they separated and ate with Jews, and Paul calls them hypocrites. So I put all of this together, and I say this was in the 50s, and I think a rift, a schism happened between the, the Pharisees and the Jesus followers, and then the Gospels were written after this. All of the Gospels, and a lot of, uh, this is all post, post-Jerusalem Council, that rift that happened. And so now all of that rhetoric that you get about sons of the devil, they'll throw you out of the synagogues, they're hypocrites, all of that is a fight that happens with the Pauline Christians who are writing the Gospels, um, and then the Jewish, inclusive, the Jewish exclusive faction, which would have been the Pharisees, and some of that, even Peter and James, there's, there's hints in there that they're a more Jewish exclusive, or Paul is a Gentile inclusive. So... I deal with that, I explain all that, and then the rhetoric fits nicely with what the philosophers are doing. We know that Aristotle and Cicero actually wrote full books on how to destroy your philosophical opponent with rhetoric. And so I went through all of their writings, and, and I went through the Dead Sea Scrolls, I went through Paul, and I made a list of all the, the terms that are constantly, that they're consistently used against your opponent. You got viper, you got hypocrites, you got people who love money, you know, they, they're, they're, they love wealth, um, that shows up all over the place. And you have Lucian, here's an author who makes fun of this. He says, these, all these philosophers, these competing schools, they constantly slam each other and they call each other hypocrites. And he goes through all these examples and he says, some people say that you are this like scrawny little figure who has a nice robe over you. You look nice on the outside, but you're like, you're the scrawny little like devilish creature inside. And I compare that with what Matthew says, you're whitewashed tombs, but you're rotting inside. All of those, all of those, um, that, all of that polemic and invective of Matthew against Pharisees shows up in Lucian. It shows up in Josephus against his opponents. Uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls sect is calling other groups of people. You guys are seekers of soothed things. Like you tell people what you want to hear. So anyway, I, I don't want to ramble about this, but th that's essentially what is happening is that all of that rhetoric is late first century, um, late first century writings that are written after the Jerusalem Council where you have the schism between Pharisees or the Jewish exclusive faction and the Gentile inclusive faction. So I don't know if Christians will buy that, you know, without reading everything, everything I wrote, they're just going to like, oh, you know, this guy, he's just going to take a non-historical view, but I really do believe that Jesus called them hypocrites, but 
it doesn't, the, all, the data doesn't fit. Because if you take what Josephus says and Luke and compare it to Matthew, every time Matthew has the Pharisees in there approaching Jesus, he has Pharisees and Sadducees. Well, we know from Josephus that the Pharisees were not bootlickers of Sadducees. They didn't do, they didn't, those, those guys were competing factions. They did not like each other. So to have them kind of formulaic, formulaically following Jesus around as Pharisees and Sadducees in the Galilean, you know, countryside, that doesn't make sense. And if you compare it to Luke, wherever Matthew has Pharisees and Sadducees, Luke removes Pharisees. So almost any episode, there's questions about the legitimacy that, uh, or the historical reliability of that particular episode. So I take all that in aggregate, and I say it's, it's pretty clear that most of the Pharisee episodes that are hostile towards Pharisees are, are not across several Gospels. They do not fit with Josephus, but they do fit a late first century setting when the Jesus movement is at war with, with Jews and especially Pharisees. I, I really appreciate what you're bringing to the table because unless you're able to step back and look at the whole historical uh, framework, it's hard to, um, to make sense of all these texts. But the only um, question that I would have related to this is that you do see in the book of Acts that there's a large number of Pharisees that are following Jesus in the time of Pentecost, or we would call it Shavuot. And then why, if, if it is a polemic against the Pharisees, why have Paul submit to them when he returns back to Jerusalem? Um, I've never heard people call James a Pharisee. And James tells him, make sure that you follow the, the rite of the Nazarite and that you go to the temple to appease them. So if the whole um, New Testament was written in conflict to the, with the Pharisaical perspective, why would they throw in that, that they were trying to work things out and that Paul was willing to submit himself to the more religiously observant Jews to show them that he wasn't preaching falsehoods and trying to deny the, the Torah? Yeah, that's a, um, that's a good question. And I think, uh, I mean, you can rephrase it if you want, but basically what I'm seeing, that Paul's had, like Paul is a Pharisee, and in addition to all the other data of Pharisees that are approaching Jesus or sticking up for Jesus, you have Nicodemus stepping up during Jesus' trial and saying, doesn't this guy deserve a better trial? You have Gamaliel stepping up, and he at one point he, he tells Sanhedrin, he's like, you know, these guys need a proper trial, and he, he basically saves the apostles. Again, Paul gets brought before the Sanhedrin, and you, you have the Sadducees who are trying to get a harsh punishment, but it's, but it's the Pharisees who get him freed. And so um, this is one thing that I, I mentioned in the paper that I haven't discussed yet, and that is the leniency of the Pharisees. Maybe this will answer your question, but maybe not. And if it doesn't, you can rephrase your question, and we can explore that a little bit more. But this is a key component that I haven't mentioned, and that is all throughout Josephus and the Gospels, you have these Pharisees stepping up if they're participating in the Sanhedrin, Josephus hints that they don't always participate in equal number. He says on many occasions that there's the chief priest, there's Sadducean, like chief priest families there, uh, and people who are, in, are represented in the Sanhedrin. But it says that on occasion, the principal men of the Pharisees are invited in to the Sanhedrin for rulings. And let me just give you a few examples here. He says that the Pharisees are mutually, this is quote, in English, obviously, quote, are mutually affectionate and cultivate concord in relation to the community. So they're very cordial. And then he says elsewhere that the Pharisees respected the elderly and they never contradict their proposals. He also says that the Pharisees simplify their standard of living and they make no um, concession to luxury. In another place, he says that the Pharisees are the most lenient of all the Jewish groups in their punishments, in their rulings. And then he gives one specific example where the Sanhedrin, Herod and the Sanhedrin want to uh, give a harsh punishment of death to someone, but a Pharisee, Simaeus, steps up and says, no, that's too harsh. Um, there's another incidence where a man named Eleazar was brought before the Jewish ruling body. And of course, the, the Sadducees want him put to death. And then the Pharisees offer more a lenient punishment that they should whip him. He doesn't deserve death. And then 
you combine that with all of the the occasions I you know we see in the Gospels or in Acts, Nicodemus steps up to help Jesus. Gamaliel steps up. Uh, the other Pharisees in the Sanhedrin uh, step up and save Paul. So one after the other, you have Pharisees who are trying to make sure that the process everyone gets uh, uh, you know correct ruling. And these these Pharisees are observant, like halakhic. They want to follow the law. And they know, and everybody else knows, that in, uh, in the Torah, it says that no man should be falsely accused and given a trial, you know, that's, that's um, you know, in fact, I think I'd have it here, where is it? It says, okay, in Exodus, keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent or those in the right, for I will not acquit the guilty. You shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the officials and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. That's Exodus 23. Pharisees know this. They know that they're as observant you know, people who are following the law, that they take that very, if Pharisees were at the trial of Jesus, he wouldn't have been convicted, he wouldn't have been tried, he wouldn't have been turned over to Herod. So you take all that, and but you asked about Paul, and I'm not sure what to do with him, because here he's a Pharisee, he's a proud Pharisee, but then, you know, maybe, so based on all that, maybe you can uh, ask your question again, and maybe we can think through and talk through um, that issue. Well, uh, we had Rebecca Moore, who's um, Emerita Professor at uh, San Diego uh, University, and she was saying that she called it Paulinian Pharisaism, where Paul has his own version of what it means to be a Pharisee. So let's say that Jesus has his own version of being a Pharisee, because being a Pharisee means you're a devout Jew. Right. Let's, let's just use that general perspective. So then you have um, a devout Jew who's willing to incorporate the nations as members of God's people. And then you have devout Jews who want the whole world to become Jewish. Um, why does the fight have to be so extreme? And was it really that extreme that the Gospels were written in conflict with um, the mainstream Jewish view, because that's also another thing that people don't realize is that to say that people don't have to get circumcised to join the people of God, that is a minority opinion. That is like saying, um, I'm willing to give everybody amnesty mm -hmm. uh, to become U.S. citizens when for 200 years we've had an immigration process that it is very complicated and sometimes even uh, counterintuitive. So now you have a, a, a reformer who's saying, actually, let everybody in, and we're all a happy family. And of course, there are people who are native-born, but all the new people, why should we differentiate if we're all serving the same flag or whatever in the sense of serving the same God through the Messiah Jesus? So if that is, so it's true that there's that big of a conflict, why would Paul submit himself to the devout Jews who are different from him and follow the, the laws of the temple, unless it is like Rebecca uh, said, where following the laws of the temple is what every Jew does. So he's not really submitting himself to them. He's showing them that he is a committed Jew, but that he has a different perspective regarding the Gentiles. Is that how you would describe Paul? But then doesn't that contradict what, what your theory is that, that then Paul's followers and himself, maybe later in life, decided to completely attack the other camp and say they're wrong and we just need to let all the Gentiles in. And they're actually destroying the work of Christ by not allowing for the gospel to move forward in the way that he thought was the best way. Yeah, it's, it's an excellent question, excellent debate. And I think, so yes, you're right. I think Paul, he never gave up his, and this is one thing that some of my students and, and some other Christians have a hard time with, because if we say, so, so for Christians, if they say Jesus was, you know, when he was on the cross and after that happened and after he's resurrected, the entire law is gone. It's irrelevant. In fact, when I take people to Israel on tours, I almost always hear, you know, when the, when the Israeli tour guide or those of us who are talking about first century Judaism and they're talking about the laws, especially how modern Orthodox Jews, when they see him on the street in Jerusalem, and we're talking about their customs, there's almost always someone in the group that says, didn't Jesus do away with all that? You know, and so then we have to say, okay, well, he didn't, 
he didn't really do away with it. What he says is follow the law. And when he, and so a lot of Christians say, you know, after he died and was resurrected, the law is irrelevant. But we, what we know is that didn't happen. Even his closest followers, all throughout Acts, you have Paul, you have Peter, you have James, you have all these people who are observing Shabbat. They're going to the festivals in Jerusalem. They're even sacrificing in Acts. Paul goes to Jerusalem and sacrifices. And he, again, he's a proud Pharisee. So you're right. And I think, I think what we're seeing is a Jewish faction who, and especially Paul, he's a proud Pharisee. And because he's Jewish, because he's a Pharisee, he's going to continue to follow the law. And so are the Pharisees. But I, I also think Paul, when Paul's going around the empire, he's saying, okay, we're going to bring people into the, to the Jesus movement, but you're not Jews. The law is not relevant to you. You're just following this Jewish teacher. And so, yeah, I mean, that's how I see it. I don't think Paul or Pharisees are going, are, are going against anything. I don't think they're preaching uh, or even the gospel writers are preaching against Phariseeism. I think there's different stages. There's the life of Jesus, the historical Jesus in the 20s. Then you have a couple decades in between that where all of these debates and fights start happening between what it means to be this Jesus movement. Is this a Jewish group? Is this a non-Jewish group? And I think the Pharisees are saying, this is a Jewish group. But Paul's saying, no, 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 we are Jews, but it doesn't mean that this group has to just be Jewish. We're bringing in Gentiles, and like James said, they need to follow certain laws. And he says, you know, you, you know don't eat meat that's been strangled, don't eat, you know, uh, be sexually pure, and so that's, I think, the distinction. But then the third stage, which is after those, that, that first generation is gone, and then you have the second generation, which is the writers of the Gospels, um, that, those are issues, those are political and theological issues that they are discussing. They're two, they're two stages away from the historical Jesus, and they are writing these texts as Roman citizens, potentially like they're speaking Greek. We don't know who they are. Um, Certainly, Mark is constantly using Greco-Roman style, like imagery and language, and they're trying to appeal to Gentiles. And so, by the time you get to the late '60s and the '70s, you have a completely different thing going on. You have people writing these texts to Gen to some Jews, but other Gentiles who has have adopted. You know, we know that Gentiles, some of them, they liked the Jewish system. They were converted to the Jewish way, the Jewish scripture, um, even though they weren't Jewish. And so this is why you have many Jewish writers and you have other people, you have a certain Gentile um, audiences and authors who are using King David and using Moses, using this imagery because they, they're being converted to the system. And that's what I think the gospel writers are trying to do. They're writing to appeal to Gentile audience. This is the Roman Empire. Um, so they're, it's very politically and theologically motivated, and by that time you have a rift. You have the Jewish group kicking out uh, the Jesus movement, saying you guys aren't Jews. This is after the temple when rabbinic Jews, Pharisaic Jews, had to redefine Judaism, and that's it's a massive rift. And so it's really difficult to try to get at the Gospels in the 70s or 80s to tell the story of the historical Jesus in the 20s. I just don't think I just don't think that you can do it without laying all the evidence out and trying to show the trajectory of how this relationship separates the parting of the ways between the Pharisaic group and the Gentiles. And you're right that James is not called a Pharisee. I don't know if they would have called themselves Pharisees, but I think they were Pharisaic type Jews where they followed, they leaned toward that system. They followed the rulings of the Pharisees, certainly had numerous interactions with Pharisees. Um, so you can see it does get a little complicated, but I try to work through it very systematically in the book. Well, and, and the key passage is when Jesus says in Matthew that they sit in the, in the seat of Moses. That's pretty much saying, you know, they're the ones in charge. So how can they be dismissed that easily? But I wanted to uh, get back to the LDS approach to reading the New Testament. Is there room to have a critical um view of the gospels in a historical approach like the one that you uh, display or are you automatically considered heretical because um is it similar to the protestant perspective where you have to have sola scriptura and inerrancy and things like that or do they give you leeway to be able to work through all these problems within your community 
Again, very good question. I think we are trying to work that out. There are certainly people who are very Orthodox Latter-day Saints, mostly the old, the older generation, the generation right now who are maybe 10 years away from retirement. They're in their 60s. I'm just, just thinking of certain people. They don't like they don't like the implications of what I write. And, you know, when I go through and I show, okay, this, this Jesus story fits better in a late first century, or there's a lot of rhetoric. It's just competition rhetoric, like the philosophical people do. Um, the Epicureans and Stoics are like lobbying these like attacks at each other, like hypocrites. And you, you have the gospel writers doing that to the Pharisees. When I get into all that, the implication is that it's not historically accurate. And you have to, to get at the historical Jesus, you have to just sift through mountains of data in Josephus and in the gospels and try to look at aggregately. And um, that some of them don't like it. They don't like it. So um, because of that, uh, I wouldn't be trusted in some circles. But I've had numerous people email me and say, I love this book. I'm absolutely like the, the fundamentalist scales were falling from my eyes as I was reading it. And it helped me look at it more in a more sophisticated way. But yeah, it, it, really, it really is hard for people. And especially in the book where in the, same, in the same chapter where I'm talking about these competing agendas of the Jewish, ex, the Jewish exclusive agenda versus the Gentile inclusive agenda. And then also you have the Paulines, Pauline Christians and the, the Christians who follow Peter, like we know that there's factions. Paul mentions them. And when I talk about that, it makes a lot of, made some of my reviewers uncomfortable because I, I show that like Matthew and some of the gospel writers did not like the original apostles. And you go through and I went through and showed every place where Matthew, he condemns Peter. He, you know, Jesus calls him Satan. Um, he's constantly showing a lack of faith. And there's a lot of imagery in there, a lot of words that Jesus suggests that he's going to be cast off to uh, what Christians say is hell. And they just don't like that. They, they just don't like the idea that one of the gospel writers did not like, you know, he was anti-Peter, anti-Peter. And so I just line it up and say, okay, here's was Matthew and here's Luke. In every place where Matthew tries to lob an attack at Peter, you know, like somebody brings children to Jesus and the, the, Peter and the apostles say, you know, why, why bring these kids here? Get them out of here. Don't, don't bother us. And then Jesus says, anyone who puts a, a barrier between me and little children should be cast into the sea. Put a millstone around your neck and be cast into the sea. What's, what's interesting is the very next chapter, you have another child brought to Jesus. And again, you have Peter and the apostles do the exact same thing. They condemn, they tell them to get the kids out of here. And so you have Matthew doing this all the time, just slamming the original apostles. In the meantime, you have Luke softening every, in every instance, he softens it. He either removes um, the polemic against Peter, or he changes it, or Peter's not, uh, Peter's not there. He's constantly softening it, and I'm trying to show my audience that there's different um, levels of understanding here. Luke is trying to save Peter's image. Matthew doesn't like Peter, and it's absolutely clear. So yeah, when I get into all that, it makes some people uncomfortable, but I mean, that's what the text says. And that's what I think that when, I, when I lay it out, I said, it's, it's, it's undeniable to me and we have to deal with what the text says. And even if whatever the implications are, we just have to deal with it. So yeah, you're right. There's, there's complications uh, to be uh, a fairly fundamentalistic religion in, in we're more and more like evangelical Christians. At least it seems that the, the religion is being pulled that way. And the more it's pulled that way, and we want to appeal to Protestants because we're a missionary church, then the, the harder it is for people like me who was trained by Jews to read scripture and to look at it historically, there's always going to be some, you know, some challenges there. So what about this idea that the parting of the ways was way later? Because um, one of my mentors and scholars that we've had, he talks about how all the way to the 800s, there were still Jewish groups who followed Jesus either as a prophet or some type of Messiah, but not from a divine uh, son of God perspective as, you know, I, I have a lot of questions about was that the original perspective or was developed with time? 
and the book of Hebrews seems to be very different than the other gospel uh, accounts and even Paul. So this idea that the rift happened early because of the Pharisaical uh, conflict, then where does it put the, the idea that there was Christians that would go to synagogues, that there was uh, Christians that would ask rabbis to bless their fields, all throughout the, the early centuries of the common era, and that uh, there was competing Christian groups that were more Jewish Christian than um, Paulinian or what we consider um, main, mainline uh, early church, uh, Byzantine or Orthodox. Um, if there was a, such a huge rift early in the game, wouldn't they become distinct religions um, from the get-go? It wouldn't have been uh, a slow progression as some of the scholars are saying that. Yeah, that's that, that, that's very astute. And I think my, so my answer is early on in the first and mid first century, you have a start of this separation between the G, within the Jesus movement, between the Pharisaic followers of Jesus and the Gentile inclusive, like Pauline people. So that's where it starts. And then as, I, as I'm seeing it, it lasts for two or three decades. So by the time you get into the late first century, that is still be trying to be worked, it's working itself out. And so that's just within the Jesus movement, you have this rift, Pharisees, and then the others. And then you also see strands, and there's a lot of scholars, James Dunn and other scholars are uh, have, have kind of fleshed this out, where you have this other rift between uh, a larger separation between Jesus followers and Jews in general, the Judaic system in general. And that's because with two and three and four decades of Gentiles flowing into the Jesus movement, then they become further and further apart. And so you're right, where I think it starts in the first century, but scholars are also right that it takes a long, long time. And there's this ebb and flow between how Jews and, and followers of Jesus are navigating this process. And so, yeah, there's, there's a book. Um, who are the authors? Who are the editors? It's called Jewish Followers of Jesus. And it goes for the first 500 years. And what they show is that there's a lot of times churches built right by synagogues and that there's information and traditions being passed back and forth. You have some of the same rabbinic traditions, um, like Hanina Bendoza and some other rabbis. That same exact tradition is being placed on Jesus or vice versa. So you're right that this is taking centuries to work itself out, and you still, over the centuries, with every generation, you still have um, Jewish followers of Jesus, and you you know, and you have you have this this process. But I think it started very acutely in the mid-first century within the Jesus movement and then just slowly expands. I think you could have both, what you're saying and then also what I'm saying. So where would you put Jesus in his uh, theological and religious views? Because there's a, in the great courses, there's a professor who talks about the Essenes and the Yachad of the Qumran community. And he says that people want to call him a zealot. They want to call him an Essene. They want to call him uh, a Pharisee, they want to call him all these things, but when you actually take his teachings and you apply them, he doesn't fit any group because he was lenient on some things and then he was strict on others. And that type of back and forth kind of shows his very independent and particular view that Christians believe comes directly from God, that God has this uh, particular view and everybody else is wrong other than the divine uh, Messiah. So where would you put him in the spectrum of all these Jewish groups that are competing against each other? Because I'm also very suspect when, when Jesus calls the Pharisees uh, children of the devil, to me that seems very foreign because at that time, the scenes were calling the pagans uh, the army of Armalus. So right. to claim that religious Jews are, are pagan, just like they did with him where they said that he was working for Beelzebub, or to say that they're demonic or something like that, it sounds uh, weird. Like, why condemn a group who is worried about Jewish standards of either um, practice or relationship to God or whatever they consider heretical? He's not only saying, well, you guys are wrong, and let me show you what 
the right way. It's like you guys are completely cast out and you're working for the wrong team. Was he that dualistic where he was willing to write off people and, and, and condemn them? Or is that also part of this polemic where now you have anybody that doesn't agree with the mainstream view is demonic and working for the forces of evil? And that and they say that the, the Yaha did the same, but I don't see them doing that other than saying that the Sadducees were uh, patsies for the Romans. But you don't see Jesus being a patsy for the Romans, and you don't see the Pharisees being patsies for the Romans. So why is it so easy to send them to the devil or the 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 forces of, that stand against the the Jewish people and, and the purposes of God? Yeah, so I don't see Jesus. So when we have that that polemic, I don't. I see. Okay, so let me let me start this way. I think Jesus. I would put him as a kind of a mainstream. Um, I don't know. That's very subjective. I think he's Pharisaic in the sense that you kind of sift through all that data and you see Jesus, what he's doing and what he's arguing. I don't think he is out. He's condemning Pharisees or the Jewish populace. Um, I think a lot of his vitriol, a lot of his anger is directed toward the chief, like the temple establishment, just like in rabbinic literature, it says that the Pharisees were uh, upset. And they, in fact, it says they left Jerusalem or didn't bother with Sanhedrin after 30. It says, it says 40 years before the temple was destroyed. Um, you have like people at Qumran, they were upset at the, uh, the Jerusalem temple uh, establishment. You have people who revolted numerous occasions against uh, the temple establishment and Pilate, who sometimes were working with each other. They were stealing money out of the temple treasury to build aqueducts. They were, um, the, I think, I think Jesus was absolutely condemning that ruling body. But I do, but a lot of times people lump in the Pharisees with that. They'll just say, yeah, see, G Jesus hated all the, the leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the chief priests. And I don't think that's the case. I think, um, a lot of Jews in the ancient world, including Jesus, um, despised the chief priests. Now with the Pharisees, and we didn't really talk about this yet, I, I think I'll ask someone, okay, where did Pharisees and Jesus disagree? Like, tell me where they disagreed. And they'll usually point to the, the banquet episodes where Pharisees are there and Jesus is there. And the Pharisees will say, why are you sitting with these sinners and biting these people in? And they have this constant debate. And I think if ever there was a debate between Jesus and between certain Pharisees, I think that's the debate they're having. I think this is a friendly debate. The debate is, what do we do with those people who have removed themselves with outside of the house of Israel, outside of the covenant of God? Um, what do we do with them? Because we've invited you in, Jesus, and then you're inviting these other people, and a lot of Christians will say, see here, Pharisees are being these like bloodthirsty people. They want to just... Uh, throw, kick aside those who, you know, need help. And Jesus is saying, no, um, I think Pharisees are upset that he's eating with them. I don't think it has to do with the fact that they're sinners, that he, they're saying, why are you coming into the banquet ceremony and bringing in your friends? Are you friends with these people? And it shows that this banquet ceremony is a the customary of friends. So you have Pharisees there, you have Jesus there. They're constantly together on like five different occasions, it says in, in, in Luke. And they're having this debate, and they, this debate continues. And I think that's the only point of disagreement, one of the only points of disagreement between Jesus and Pharisees, because they have it over and over again. And that is, what do we do with these people who are not insiders like us, and they're they going out of their way to, like, break the law or leave? That's the debate. And so you even have Pharisees asking Jesus, like, they, they come to Jesus and say, what about those people over there who you keep inviting into our social circles and 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 risking that we're impure. They're bringing in their pagan impurities and, their, and a lot of their sin. Like, where are you standing on this, Jesus? And he's saying, we need to invite them in. We need to, we need to help those people. And so when Pharisees step up and ask, what do we do with those people? Jesus says, look, uh, when you have one sheep that goes off and you, have, you leave the 99. In other words, he's saying, you and me are part of the 99. It's our job to go after the one. That puts Jesus in the camp of the Pharisees. When the lost son goes off and squanders his money, um, and then comes back. This is the Pharisees asking about this. This is the Pharisees asking about this debate. And Jesus puts the Pharisees in the position of the older brother. 
And it makes sense because the Pharisees are ones asking about those people who have left. And Jesus says, look, you and, um, you and I are like the older brother or like the father, and we need to reach out and, and forgive the lost. So just the implication of those, you know, the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the lost son, the implication is that is Jesus is in the camp, firmly in the camp of Pharisees. And their debate is about what we do with those other people who have left. So I'm putting Jesus firmly in a kind of a Pharisaic, even if he wasn't like a Pharisaic proper, we don't, we don't even know if it was a certain group that you become a member of. But whatever it is, Jesus is Pharisaic, and I just don't think he's saying, sons of the devil, you guys are hypocrites. Again, that's, I think that's later to me. There's too much evidence of him being with them all the time. And if Peter is willing to pull out his sword and chop off an ear and fight for his leader to, to the temple establishment, why isn't he doing that? any other occasion with Pharisees. If he really is, if they really are these bloodthirsty kind of people who are trying to get Jesus arrested, why are there never fights? So yeah, that's where I put Jesus. I want to give you an example from modern um, Jewish history that correlates to what you're saying. So in the book, uh, Boy Chicks in the Hood, it talks about how the Tzadmar Hasidim um, have these parties or you know they're celebrating Shabbat or they're celebrating one of the holidays and they don't invite other uh, religious uh, Jews or non-religious Jews to the events because they think that they, it would be offensive to God to have people who you don't know that they're actually following the commandments. But on the other hand, you have Chabad, which is an outreach organization, and they'll invite everybody because they think that that is the way you bring people closer to God. So you have a very strict group who wants nothing to do with anybody that they can vouch for, and then you have another group who's also very strict and who has very particular views. And they're both Hasidic, they're both ultra-Orthodox, but sees it as a potentiality to get people uh, to join their group. So like you said, it's, it's the same team, but you have different approaches. And even um, Rabbi uh, Schneerson and Shlomo Karbach uh, broke off because one wanted to go reach out to the hippies and the other one wanted to reach out all over the world with a very uh, distinct uh, flavor of Judaism. Uh, the last question for you has to do with Jesus' divinity. Um, you know, the, the Jewish Gospels um, and a lot of stuff from Michael Heiser and other groups, they say that early in the Jesus movement, there was a realization that Jesus was a divine Messiah or that he shared that he was a divine Messiah. But when you read the Gospel of Mark, which is um, believed to be the earliest, I don't see an emphasis on that. I see an emphasis on repentance. I see an emphasis on holiness. And even when he gets into the conflict with the um, uh, high priest, it has more to do with, with authority where it says, you see the son of man coming clouds in heaven. It's like that he or the son of man idea is like an avenging figure uh, similar to what the scenes talk about with different, they have like five different messiahs, Melchizedek and all these other people is this idea of having a representative of God who's going to judge the living and the dead. And that's what they consider to be offensive, that he's um, standing in opposition to their leadership. Um, do you agree with, with my view that these ideas of the eternality of Jesus and his um, you know, pre-existence and stuff like that, that those were later, um, we don't have to dismiss them, but we have to accept that the more they reflected, the more that they realized, even if you believe that he was all that, that they wrote it and created a theological treatise over it. I don't see the early writers trying to um, express that because then that becomes the main contention. And this is where I, I struggle with Paul because Paul talks about all those things, repentance, holiness, stuff like that. But then he makes it all about uh, acceptance and, and uh, acquiescence of this particular view. Where do you think that comes from? Is that also an, a, a way of uh, differentiating themselves and pushing everybody that unless you believe that particular idea regarding their Messiah, then you have no, no uh, room in the table. So it feels like Paul becomes very open to the Gentiles, but very narrow on, on the theological uh, perspective based on his mystical stuff to the point of excluding everyone that doesn't agree. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that, it, and 
in terms of my religious, like theological views, like when I go to church, certain like faith claims, yeah, there's a certain divinity in there that's there. But as a scholar, when I look at the text, yes, I agree with you. I don't think we see it in the early text. And we have like Paul in Paul, some of the earliest texts where he's talking about when Jesus became divine and how that worked out. But there's even pro, there's even proto, like there's text before Paul, because he's, he's saying, you know, and he, it's like, like in Romans, he's quoting, it appears to be drawing on an earlier tradition where he says, you've been aware of this tradition and, and it's not, Jesus is not divine. And so, and as you go along, you say, here's Paul, the earliest, then you get to Mark and you get to Matthew and Luke and you get to John. And as you go through, you see that as you go through in the timeline, they're pushing Jesus's divinity earlier and earlier. You know, Mark has him being coming divine at a baptism. But later on, you've got Matthew and Luke saying, wait a minute. And they're, they're working through this theologically. They're, wait a minute. If Jesus is, was God and he's always God, and he's divine. And how are we working this out? Well, he can't just be have become God's son, so to speak. Uh, in fact, that's the words from Psalms, God's son at the baptism. It has to be his birth episodes that really smack of a divine figure. And then John comes along and says, even, it's even before that. It's like in the pre-existence. So yeah, I agree with you. Like in the historical, for the historical Jesus, I don't think you have people following him around. This is just me as I'm reading the text, thinking that he's divine. Um, and I don't even, I don't even think Jesus liked the term Messiah because a lot of times he would say, don't, don't you know, don't say anything. Don't call me that. You know, uh, when Nathan approaches him, he says, are you that one? Are you the Messiah? And he's like, who told you that? Like he, he doesn't really answer the question. When Caiaphas asks, are you the Messiah? Are you that one who's going to come, you know, the Messiah? Like he, he says, that's what you're saying. Like he doesn't just say, yes, I'm the Messiah. He says, those are your words. Um, you know, and so I think he's hedging. He doesn't want all the baggage that comes with the Messiah. So, yeah, I think if we went back in time and we're looking at in the late 20s, I think Jesus is a messianic candidate people might think he's the messiah uh they might be hoping and there's a lot of evidence for that you know peter's constantly saying things like no you're not going to be killed but yeah I, I agree with you that in the 20s this guy jesus walking around the galilean countryside he's similar i think to people like hanina bendoza and some of these other rabbis who are known as healers and holy men and they have a message of god and people see them as being able to do certain miracles or they're, they're hearing about these miracles. And so they, you know, they want to go check it out. And I think, I think after he died, then people had to wrestle with, okay, is the Messiah? Is he divine? What's going on? And I think that's late first century and into the second century discussions and, you know, compromise and, you know, yeah, I think that's what's happening. I think he's, and this is why in the book, because he has so many, wears so many different hats, and you said, he, you know, I don't know where he fits nicely. This is why I use the shaman complex, the shaman, shamanic model complex, where anthropologists have looked at different groups and a shaman and shown that this person is sort of this eclectic. Um, he's the historian, the mystic, like he's, he's the healer. He's, he's the sage. He's all of that to this community. And I think Jesus kind of had this kind of holy man, um, local hero shamanic kind of uh, role that he played. Well, we want to thank you for your time. And uh, we want to tell our audience that we had you first on our show speaking about your community, the LDS community and their history and misconceptions about it. So I'll try to post, repost uh, our interview and that um, we want to know how can we get a hold of your book and how can people follow you uh, you have a YouTube channel, and what other ways can they uh, stay abreast of, of your research? Yeah, I appreciate it. Um, certainly, they can get some of these ideas in my book, A Stranger in Jerusalem. It's on Amazon. It's on Audible. Um, my YouTube channel slash podcast, I dump both audio and visual in the same in both podcasts, and those are called The Stra Strangers in Jerusalem. Um, YouTube channel, Strangers in Jerusalem podcast. Um, and people can email me at trevin uh, underscore hatch at byu.edu. Certainly there's things that perhaps I didn't articulate well that they could get in the book. Send me email. We can have a dialogue. It's kind of hard to explain everything, you know, a 300-page book. 
But um, yeah, feel free to check out those videos and then email me if you want. And thank you so much for sharing this. Uh, we will be uh, broadcasting this um, on Radio Free Nashville uh, this Wednesday at, at noon. And uh, we are closing off our uh, seventh season of Mystic Skeptic and Raiders of the Unknown, where we discuss all these uh, theological and historical issues. Uh, again, uh, Trevin Hatch uh, has been doing very important research and helping uh, with the Jewish and Muslim community and the LDS uh, you know, church to be able to understand uh, different faiths better and to, to grow. And I think that's the, the point of, of being a, a religious person is that we're always growing and we're always learning. So we're ongoing students. So thanks again. And, and we hope to talk to you soon. Appreciate it. Thank you, David. It's been great.